Thank you very much for coming um, to discuss something which couldn't feel more central at the moment. Um, politicians, rhetoric, lies, when do they lie? Why should they lie? When do we want them to lie? And um, here to discuss it with me today, I'm Jenny Russell. I'm a columnist for the Evening Standard at the Sunday Times. Um, uh, Sam Leith, who is a columnist for the Evening Standard and a writer and a literary editor who's written an extremely witty book on the art of rhetoric, which I commend to all of you, particularly those of you who ever wish to write an essay or a column. I was reading it late last night and came across the section in the middle which explained how to structure an essay, and I thought, my God, I've spent 30 years without knowing how to do this. And it was an absolutely blissful insight, and it would have saved me so many hours of um, struggle over the years. I commend his book to you. Then we have Ian Leslie, who's written possibly an even more illuminating book. It's called Born Liars. She's lying. She's really trying to I'm say lying. I'm sorry. <laughs> if only because it was, the book was such a joy to me, because it was about how lying is absolutely integral to how we are as human beings. In fact, it is the secret of the fact that we have um, succeeded and developed as social animals. From the minute that we first realised that somebody else thought differently to the way that we did, we have desired to make them see our point of view, and we have frequently done so through lying. And one of the reasons I was so pleased to read this was that when my daughter was about six, she came home from school and said, Mummy, we had a talk at school today about how we were never to lie. And I was absolutely furious, and I said, don't be ridiculous, you have to lie all the time. I mean, when you hear me on the phone saying to Great Aunt Sally, I'd love to come to your dinner, but I'm terribly sorry, I've got um, you know, a very important engagement that night um, writing a speech or something, it's actually just because I don't want to offend her feelings. In the same way, when you open up some miserable Christmas present that you don't want, you have to lie to the person who gave it to you. And the important thing in life is to know when to lie and when other people are going to be offended by your lying. <laughs> So I was absolutely delighted to read Ian's book, which is a very sophisticated look at just why lying is integral to our existences. Then we're moving on from the theory about how we ought to behave to the practice. <laughs> practice of lying, yes. And the practice of lying is indeed innate to the art of politics. Um, Jonathan, who spent his career working first for the diplomatic service and then for Tony Blair, knows that you would get nothing done in politics if you didn't fib about the truth the whole time. And often in an excellent cause. And he's going to give us many intriguing examples of why that is so, and why in his third career, which is running an NGO that brings terrorists and governments together in private talks, he would get nowhere at all without deceiving both sides frequently as to the true position. Lastly, we have Douglas Hurd, who followed a very similar career to Jonathan's in that he started off in the, in the diplomatic services, except that then he became a practicing politician. So we're also going to be able to direct questions to Douglas about how and when he has found it important to tell the truth. And there's one last thing... <laughs> there's one last thing that I want to say, which is I think that at the moment um, it's an excellent time to be discussing this because I think we have never been more hypocritical about what we ask of politicians. As Ian's book shows, we lie all the time, every day. And yet we demand of politicians both that they lie to us consistently and as a matter of course and in order to get on in their careers. From the moment that they start off at selection committees, swearing to the people of Walsall or Macclesfield or Brighton that they desire nothing more than to represent them, to the moment that they carry on as politicians and have to lie about their allegiance to all sorts of ridiculous party policies which may change from one week to the next, to the moment when they hit the cabinet, where the minute that they dissent from anything that the cabinet has decided, it's a split or a gaffe, we ask that they lie to us. 
We ask that they lie to us about our futures. We don't want them to tell us that we're trashing the planet, can't afford our pensions, and that our living standards aren't going to rise. And yet when they're caught out in some, I would say, minor lie, like, did I take my, ask my wife to take my speeding points, we are prepared to trash them and turn upon them mercilessly. So I think today's discussion couldn't be more appropriate. And we're going to ask Ian Leslie to begin by explaining to us why, as human beings, we're born to do this. Right, OK, I shall take that task with great relish. Um, because well, one of the reasons I um, wanted to write the book uh, is that I thought that our attitudes to, to lying are uh, a little bit mixed up. So we all hate lying, okay? We all hate liars. So liars is one of the, is, liar is one of the worst insults you can throw at a person. Yet, as most of you will probably concede, uh, most of us do tell lies, okay? Uh, some of us more than others, perhaps, but lying is part of everyday life. So just to give some evidence for that, what one of the psychologists I talked to carried out a, a big study of, of lying, and she, she found that... Uh, People lie on average uh, one and a half to two times uh, a day. Um, I think that might be conservative. Perhaps that's just me. Um, uh, another one found that, that two strangers will tell three lies within ten minutes of meeting each other. So I don't know if you've said hello to the person next to you yet, but um, <laughs> don't believe a word. Uh, and um, the, more I, the more I looked into it, the more I talked to uh, uh, psychologists, uh, evolutionary biologists, uh, sociologists, uh, the, the more kind of profound and interesting this question got because the one thing that they all approached the subject in a very different way but the one thing they all converged on was that lying isn't just some uh, aberration a uh, sort of flaw in the human software uh, a bug in the human software it's, an a it's absolutely central to who we are um, it is uh, almost literally in our, in our DNA um, uh, one of the first people I talked to is a, a, a primatologist, and he studies uh, uh, apes and chimpanzees. And he'd seen examples of tricky and, and deceptive behaviour, um, like uh, a young chimp getting who was in trouble with his elders um, because he'd, he'd committed some misdemeanour. The elders come running over the hill. The, the chimp runs up to another hill and kind of goes like this um, and, and implies that there's a, a predator or a threat coming in. And, uh, of course, there isn't any, but by the time the elders realise this, they've forgotten why they came running over. Um, so, um, and, and actually, you know, it wasn't just anecdotal. He amassed m m a huge amount of, of data of this type of behaviour and he put together a whole theory of how we got to be so intelligent uh, called the Machiavellian theory of intelligence. Um, uh, which um, Jonathan is an expert on Machiavelli, so you can tell us about that later. But um, uh, well, I mean that literally. That wasn't it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and he, sh you know, he, he argued very persuasively, and, and, and many sort of agreed with him that the reason we grew to have such big brains compared to our, uh, our primate cousins is that we lived in bigger groups uh, than other primates. Social life is very very demanding, as as you you will confirm, um, and it requires a lot of brain power. And one of the central things you have to do is work out who's deceiving you and who's not deceiving you, who's on your side, and how to trick them out of food or a mate, or how not to be tricked out of food or a mate. And in order to do that, you have to be you have to be intelligent. So we we evolved to be intelligent partly because we needed to 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 lie and to detect lying in in others. So it's really at the heart of of who we are. Um, I'd say a brief word about um, uh, uh, politics, because obviously we'll be talking uh, mainly about that. Um, 
as uh, I, I sort of with Jenny on the fact that we, we put politicians in an almost impossible position. Um, I think they are one of the ways that we, we make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Um, we frequently lie, we don't like to admit it. Uh, we, we deceive ourselves about what's possible in all areas of, of our life, but we don't like to admit that either. Um, and so what we do, because we all like to think we're very honest people, is we displace this uh, sort of uncertainty about our own probity onto politicians, or well, they're one of the groups that we do this to. Um, and we say, politicians, they're terrible lies. They lie all the time. They can't move their lips without, without lying. Um, and, you know, of course, politicians are, are, are human beings like, like everyone else. Um, and actually, they'll probably lie less in their daily work than, than most professions because uh, they're under such scrutiny. They avoid the question all the time, and they, are, they can be evasive, and they can say, you know, be shifty, of course. But that's because, or partly because, we don't like to hear the truth. Okay, Jenny sort of alluded this, to this already. Um, and so we put them in this, in this sort of environment where uh, we don't really want to hear the truth. You know, when Alistair Darling said, you know, when he was Chancellor in, in uh, I think this was 2009, he said, I think this recession is going to be the deepest recession for 60 years. It's, it's very, very, very serious. Um, all sorts of stuff came down on his head, and at least from his own Prime Minister. Um, uh, and he, you know, he got into trouble because he was telling the truth. Um, uh, the journalist Michael Kinsley's definition of a gaffe is when a politician tells the truth by accident. Um, uh, so so uh, um, I think uh, we ought to look on their position a little bit more sympathetically, but I'm sure we'll be discussing that more. Ian, thank you very much. Now, Sam, on the art of rhetoric. Well, yes, I mean, my, my topic is rhetoric, and that's obviously what politicians do all the time. I mean, the centre of the political process is the idea um, that the persuasive arts are what should, should shape our, our organisations. And the problem here is that rhetoric now has become almost synonymous with lying. Um, I mean, when you hear people use the phrase, you know, empty rhetoric or um, just rhetoric or mere rhetoric, I mean, the term which actually historically has always simply meant no more nor less than persuasive language um, has become synonymous with lying. And this goes way back. I mean, when Mark Antony says, I am no orator, as Brutus is, but as you know me all, a plain, blunt man. Um, that is a lie. Um, but he's presenting himself as somebody who isn't rhetorical, who isn't a good speaker. Actually, Brutus is a much less good speaker than Mark Antony, and that's why Antony's speech carries the day. Um, now, the deal with politics and rhetoric, I think, and rhetoric lies that Rhetoric relies, as Aristotle told us, on three different persuasive appeals. Ethos, pathos, and logos. Um, if you can hold these sort of three musketeers in your head for the moment. Um, ethos, which is the one that sort of underpins everything else, is the credibility and plausibility of the speaker. Um, pathos is the, the idea of trying to sway someone's emotions. And logos, which comes a very sort of poor third, is the attempt to actually develop an argument. Um, now, politicians, as I say, we're accustomed to thinking of them as lying all the time. Um, but actually, I would contend, um, the outright lie is very, very, very dangerous for politicians or for anyone in public life. Because if you're caught out in a flat lie, that's your ethos appeal, torpedoed, nobody believes. You know, I mean, if Geoffrey Archer were to run for office now, um, he's unlikely to get very far because people go, you're a liar. So, 
actually what politicians do is they use the tools of rhetoric to change and twist. They're very rarely just telling a lie. What they're more often doing is using logos, the logical side of the argument, which proceeds not in a kind of um, A, therefore B, therefore C way, but as Aristotle, the sort of mutant of rhetoric, um, recognised, it's kind of wobbly and fuzzy. The connections that you make when you're developing an argument in the sublunary world are to do with probability, to do with, you know, if we do this, that might happen. Is it likely that X committed that crime? And so on. So the most interesting ways, it seems to me, in which politicians lie, and in which lying enters into public discourse, are in the way that, for example, you might frame definitions. I mean, really on the back foot, Bill Clinton, you might remember, said, it depends what the meaning of is is. <laughs> um, I mean, that, at that stage, he was looking a little bit threadbare. But again, you know, for, for a long time, um, he maintained, although he didn't advertise, a very, very eccentric definition of what the term sexual relations actually means. Um, and it turned out it encompassed some things and not others. And so he was in his, Oh, you mean that sexual relations? Oh. <laughs> then there is that phrase which is often used for lying, but actually is, it isn't a sin of lying, it's being economical with the truth. Um, William Waldegrave got in great trouble when actually he made a gaffe, aka um, um, involuntary admission to truth, when he said, of course you mislead Parliament. Um, and there's huge sort of, kind of Bateman cartoon style hands to the cheeks. Um, when actually he was talking about economy of truth, because you present your truth selectively. I mean, there was a very good instance, um, the 45-minute claim. Do you remember I, when that was splashed in the Evening Standard and everybody, you know, there was a sort of naive... Um, Sam, I, I think you should explain that claim. Oh, several people here may have been eight at the time. Oh, sorry, there may have been eight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, in the run-up to the war, war in Iraq, there was, a, it, there was a claim made that Saddam Hussein could deploy <coughs> extremely nasty weapons, in, could have them ready for use in 45 minutes. And this was understood to me, as a witness, a huge splash of the Evening Standard, um, that within 45 minutes he could rain chemical death on London. I think the, I think the headline said 45 minutes to destruction. Yes, I think it did. And Jonathan was in number 10 at the time, so he can tell us all about it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd probably have to. <laughs> yeah. Now, this, this claim actually referred to the deployment of battlefield weapons. So Saddam Hussein could deploy very nasty weapons against somebody maybe 20 miles away from Baghdad, not in London. But that claim went uncorrected because it was very convenient. And afterwards, I think, um, it certainly wasn't Jonathan who was asked, but one of his colleagues... They said, well, why didn't you explain that actually they were talking about battlefield weapons? Said, well, we were very busy running the country. <laughs> um, that was Alistair Campbell, wasn't it? I and he said, if I tried to... I, I, well, I, Campbell said, he said afterwards, if I tried to correct it, the newspapers wouldn't have believed me. That was his belief. <laughs> yes, his ethos appeal was looking shaky. Um, and finally, there's um, another way of doing things. is the false opposition, which is not an outright lie, but you present two choices as if they're the only two choices. You know, either we go to war or terrorists are going to kill us at home. You know, we have to cut the NHS or the country will collapse. You, you are either with us or you're with the terrorists. Or to 
you know, leave our own front door. So we are, have to develop nuclear weapons or the Zionist entity will convert all our women to Judaism. You know, all of these are sort of false oppositions that are absolutely the currency of politics. And they're not lies, they're simply ways of framing a debate in such a way as to make the outcome, as it were, favorable to you and to exclude, you know, it's a partial truth, it's the economy of the truth. Um, and I'd finally to just use an instance that's not exactly from politics, but the Zuni tribe of Native Americans in New Mexico, a 1905 study by an anthropologist, discovered there was a 16-year-old boy who was accused of being a witch because a, um, a young girl had recently come into contact with him and she'd died mysteriously and inexplicably. And this is sort of instance of quite how rhetoric is basically essentially indifferent to the truth. You know, what, what, what you're looking for is plausibility of truth. The boy said, I had nothing to do with this, I'm not a witch, I'm not a witch. And the villagers wouldn't believe it, something had to have killed the girl. So finally, he said, okay, I inherited from my father the ability to change into different animal forms, and while I was doing that, the girl died when she came into contact with me. And he said, they said, well, demonstrate, show us. And he said, well, I can't, because the power left me after the girl died. And so they let him off on the grounds that he wasn't any longer a witch. <laughs> and this is a demonstration, which all politicians will know, that um, what Aristotle said, pithenon tini pithenon, which is what is persuasive is what you can be persuaded by. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Douglas, would you like to pick up on that with some reflections on how these kinds of constraints have worked in practice? Well, you have to start, I think, with, with, with Justin Pilot, who said, um, what is truth, and did not stay for an answer. <laughs> and it's the last point, that's the, most, the last uh, phrase that is the, uh, in, in the Bacon quote that is actually uh, uh, the most telling. We're not really interested in the truth. If we were, we would dig around for it and spend much more time um, analysing it and discussing it. There is very little truth around in ordinary discourse. And the illustrations have been, been made all over uh, again. Um, and most of these, I think, don't matter. Most of these, when you say, I'd love to come to your party, but I'm so sorry I can't. I'm, changing my job or marrying a wife or whatever. Um, <laughs> these are good New Testament examples. Um, they, 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 um, uh, it, it, it doesn't, these are because the, 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 the truth is not really important. Um, and the truth is not really um, expected of, 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 of one in, in civilized, humane uh, discourse. If I was telling the truth, often it would be hurtful and it might be untrue, but it would be a hurtful thing to do. And therefore, on the whole, we, we steer away from it. Um, and that's, I, don't, I don't think that is really blameworthy. It's the so-called white lie. And I think the so-called white lie is, is, is a thoroughly well-documented, and um, in, in all our experience, it exists. It's, it's cast about at politicians as if we were the only example of these things. But, but we're not. We are, we are just putting into practice what in, 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 uh, in, in, in our own daily lives, what actually is common practice in almost everybody's lives. But as has already been said, we, we prefer not to acknowledge it quite so brutally as that. Um, 
and so that I, I think on the whole, I think therefore that on the whole, this is a, 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 a non-issue. It, it's, it's not hugely important. What is important is whether what you do, whether what you um, actually, what your performance is, actually in, 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 in accordance with, with, with a truth that you believe in. And that, I think, is a, is a test which you can apply um, uh, to, to, to most human activity, whether by politicians or anybody else. Would you like to give us any examples, Douglas, of moments when you thought... I was hoping not to have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, you can wait. You can give them to us later. Okay. Okay. Jonathan. Um, well, as Ian said, I, I'm a, a Machiavellian, not in the sense of being Machiavellian, but having written about Machiavelli, because um, I found it the most useful way to try and think about my time in government. There are very few people who actually write about um, the practice of power uh, from the point of view of a practitioner rather than the theory of it. There are plenty of books about the Constitution, but very few about how power actually works. Machiavelli was almost the last one that was written on the subject, and he's remarkably realistic. He's not actually very immoral or amoral. He is instead um, looking at the reality that he saw around him in the 15th century and observing how politics worked. Um, and one of the maxims he comes up with, um, which has stuck down through the centuries, is that a prince or a leader needs to be a fox and a lion. He needs to have the courage of a fox, but the cunning of a lion, of, 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 sorry, the courage of, some politicians do have that, which is sort of unfortunate. <laughs> to have the courage of a lion and the, uh, the, the cunning of a fox. And to give a practical example of that in my time in number 10, in 2005, Michael Howard was running an election campaign against the Labour Party on immigration. It was a, a, what they call the dog whistle campaign, where they tried to get back um, hard right Tories by not quite saying what they meant. And it was doing us real damage during the election campaign. And eventually, Tony Blair decided he had to make a speech on immigration. He had to sort of stand up on the issue, or else we were going to continue to bleed during the election campaign. And he went out and, and made the speech. And um, I was in the uh, Labour Party campaign headquarters and watched the speech happening. And uh, the whole place went quiet, which is very unusual as people watched it. And then when he finished the speech, they, they all uh, applauded and cheered because he made a very brave speech of actually standing up for immigration and why immigration was right and did the right things for this country. When he came back, I asked him, I, I was watching you, something went wrong with the teleprompter, didn't it? You, the bits of the speech weren't on the teleprompter. You had to look down at your notes. And he said, no, nothing wrong with the teleprompter. There were particular bits of my speech I didn't want reported on the television news. So I decided to fluff those and look down at my notes instead of reading them straight out to the screen. <laughs> So in that case, he had both the, the courage of, of the lion and the, the, the cunning of the fox. <laughs> now, the reason I don't actually think politicians lie any more than anyone else, and I would defend politicians who are, it seems to me get a pretty bad rap. No one in this country goes into politics to make money. No one goes into politics for... I mean, the worst motive they have for going into politics is generally vanity. Um, but they do have to sell contradictory things because we want contradictory things. We get the politicians we deserve. If we want to have lower taxes and higher spending then you're going to get politicians who promise you both, and there are consequences when they promise you that. So I think it's, to a large degree, our fault. When they, when they do lie, when they get caught out lying, it's usually actually for sort of practical reasons, which you maybe don't quite understand if you've not been there. What happens to you is, on something like Sherry Gate, which some of you who were over, who were over eight at the time may, may remember, um, uh, I got a call at 2.30 uh, on a Saturday afternoon in a toy shop in Helmsley in North Yorkshire, saying the, daily, the Mail on Sunday demanded to know the answer to the following 26 questions <laughs> by 5 o'clock, and if we didn't deny them immediately, they would then publish the story as true and confirmed by number 10. So at 2.30 on a Saturday afternoon in a toy shop in Helmsley, you have to then try and find out what the facts were from something that happened five years ago. 
and it's not actually very easy. If you rush into giving... But, but these are about Cherie buying flats. These are about Cherie buying flats. And whether or not a con man had helped her to do so. And whether or not a con man had helped her to do various other details to the, to the story. It is actually extraordinarily difficult. If you give the facts, you may well have got something wrong. It takes a lot longer to find out what happened five years ago than people might remember, might realise. Um, a similar thing happened to Sir Peter Mandelson uh, the second time he resigned. Uh, he uh, <laughs> trying to find out the facts of what had happened by uh, the lobby briefing at 11 o'clock on a, a Tuesday is actually an incredibly difficult thing to do. If you talk to people, they all have different memories of what happened. And so you try and put the thing together. If you try and say something, something concrete to try and kill the story, you get caught out lying later. If you don't, they accuse you of having conducted this evil and you can never get them to, uh, to, to take it back. And perhaps the most obvious way to prove this is by the fact that they don't want to lie is by sort of a negative. Um, it seems to be that everyone, uh, or lots of people, believe that the Labour government lied about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, that we made them up and we put it out there as an excuse for going into war. You think about it from the point of view of the politician. Why on earth would you actually do that? Why would you say uh, the weapons of mass destruction when you knew there weren't? Because you'd get found out once you'd invaded Iraq and discovered there were no weapons of mass destruction. So actually, to lie deliberately and say there were, no weapons of there were weapons of mass destruction when you knew you would prove that there weren't would be absolutely insane. So you can actually find, you can, by taking the negative, as it were, you can show uh, how unwise politicians would be, as, as Sam said, to be caught out in a in a barefaced lie. There are, however, times when it is, I think we would all agree, sensible to lie in, in politics. Take the example of John Major uh, in 1992-93, um, in when he was exchanging letters with Martin McGuinness of the IRA uh, to try and bring about peace. Uh, one of those letters went exactly at the time of the uh, Warrington bomb, when two small children were killed by two IRA bombs, one in one place, then as everyone ran the other way, the other bomb killed the children as they ran into it. John Major was asked about would he talk to the IRA at that time when he was exchanging letters and said it would turn his stomach to talk to the IRA. He was a deliberate, barefaced lie. But was he criticised for it later on when the correspondence came out? No, and quite rightly too. If he hadn't been carrying on that uh, correspondence, if he had not been doing it in secret, we wouldn't have peace in Northern Ireland today. So it is actually sometimes important for politicians to be economical with the truth, as I think Sam put it. There is another sort of um, last aspect of, uh, of the truth, which is something I call constructive ambiguity. Uh, constructive ambiguity isn't quite lying, uh, but sometimes it can be quite helpful in getting to, uh, to an agreement, particularly in what I do now in terms of trying to broker deals between terrorists and, and governments around the world. If you tell a particular terrorist group, if you told ETA that it was going to have to uh, basically give up all of its weapons and um, end its campaign without any clear promises. If you told them that at the beginning of the process, they would never agree to it. If the government was told it would have to take various steps, they would never agree to it. So you have to take people gently into a place they never intended to be. If you told the IRA in 1989 that they were going to sign up for a peace agreement that didn't give them a united Ireland, which meant the IRA standing down, they would never have signed up for it. You have to get there by constructive ambiguity, which is not quite, um, uh, not quite lying, but is an important way of, uh, of bringing people there. I myself have never managed to, uh, to, to get to the stage of a politician of being able to be good at telling lies. One stage when I was negotiating with Jerry Adams on the Falls Road in about, um, must be about 2001, we had a particularly intense session that was going on all night. And at one stage, Jerry Adams leaned across the table at me and said, the thing I like about you, Jonathan, is that when you lie, you blush. <laughs> and a colleague sitting next to me from the Northern Ireland office immediately went back with, unlike you, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just add a, add a, 
at a, at a point to, to prove what Jonathan said, which is a, the difficulty of getting the, the facts, uh, and yet you're constantly pressed for the facts. Um, and uh, I worked for Ted Heath for, for five or six years, and one thing he taught me, which I remembered, and which is certainly true, is that when something goes wrong, people are blown up suddenly in a horrible way, in, and, and you're taken by surprise, the first account of it, which you receive, is always wrong. Not sometimes wrong, always wrong. Not because anyone is actually trying to deceive you, but because they're groping for the truth, the facts themselves. And the first account is, is wrong. It is, misses out an essential point, or it puts in something which turns out to be not true. This happens over and over again. Ask any police officer who's interested in the, in the truth. And that, and that, um, yeah, is, is, that's an immediate point. Um, you're, you're not therefore, um, you're not therefore actually telling a lie, uh, or not even um, constructive lying. If you say, "I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, tomorrow I'll be able to talk about that," but now I can't, and yet of course you're immediately hounded by the press if within. Um, an hour or so of, a, of the, such ghastly event, uh, you aren't fully furnished with the facts and with the policy that you're going to adopt or your policy change you're going to adopt in order to deal with the facts. And you've got to have a, a, a politician needs time. He's always groping for time, for something which gives him legitimate time to think. Um, we all accept that in, 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 in principle, and yet in practice, it's extremely difficult to win for yourself uh, a, a, enough time to grope with the actual facts that exist, uh, let alone begin to embroider them. I'd just like to ask the panel before I throw it open to the floor, do you think there's any hope of getting a more sophisticated response from the media or the public to the fact that telling the truth is a difficult thing to do and that there is often going to be the kind of ambiguity that everyone has spoken about? Today, what do you think, Sam? I think um, actually less and less because, and I think the point isn't necessarily what you might call the sort of naive cynicism position, which you know Jerry Paxman's line that you know whenever I see a politician speak, I ask why is this lying bastard lying to me? Um, <laughs> and I think that is you know it's, it's worth keeping that phrase naive cynicism because the assumption that all politicians are always forever lying is you know that's. That is a sort of naive assumption, as Jonathan eloquently explained. Um, I think the problem, though, isn't to do with that, which will always obtain, you know, this sort of position. It's more just to do with the speed of the news. I mean, what Jonathan described, actually, is from a vanished world in which the Mail on Sunday would have waited until 5 p.m. <laughs> because they couldn't, and because they couldn't get the newspapers on the street fast enough. Now, you're expected to respond by the top of the hour, and I think during Jonathan's time in office was the point at which this transformation took place um, and it's continuing to take place um, and I think you know New Labour were the first people to you know they deserve credit for recognising that and though they floundered to deal with it and were often assumed to be being very shifty because they recognised that you had to work with the 24 hour news cycle um, unfortunately it means that there's going to be less and less time for um, Douglas says, I'll talk to you tomorrow night about that if that's okay you know, you've got <laughs> You know, 36 hours of, of you know, minister refuses to respond before tomorrow night. How very sinister that would be, yes. yes. Ian. Um, uh, I, I want to briefly 
tell you about a, an experiment um, that, uh, that I, I talked to a psychologist about in the course of the book that I, I think kind of sheds a light on the environment that we put um, politicians in. Um, uh, the psychologist called Victoria Talwar, she's a Canadian uh, psychologist, she specialises in uh, children and the lying behaviour of children and their moral development. So she spends, she has spent hours and hours and hours watching children lie. Um, and uh, she carries that particular experiment on them, um, which I, I won't describe this one in, in particular because uh, I'm getting on to something else, but um, she, she carries out an experiment which is a fairly reliable indicator of a child's propensity to, to lie. It's a, it's a game that you play with a child and at some point they have the choice whether or not to lie or not. And you can, you can, then you kind of uh, say, well, did they lie, didn't they? And also, how well did they lie? So that's what the, 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 the um, did they do with a straight face? Did they immediately break into tears? Um, and she carried out this extraordinary uh, experiment um, in two schools in um, West Africa. Uh, she didn't tell me exactly which country, but she was protecting the anonymity of the, uh, of the schools involved. Um, she found these two schools which were uh, a few miles apart from each other and had similar intakes. Um, but very, very different disciplinary regimes. So one of them was run more or less on the li along the lines of uh, a Western, uh, modern sort of Western school, fairly strict. If you got into trouble, you'd get detention, uh, or you know, at the worst, you'd get suspended. And the other school, not far away, similar intake, but very different. Uh, they used corporal punishment, um, uh, and they used it really, you know, a lot. Um, and they were cracked down particularly hard on, on lying, uh, or perceived lying, uh, and they were constantly think, accusing the kids of lying, uh, and when they did so, no matter what the kid said, the kid would get dragged out to the yard and, and beaten with a stick. So they were really trying their best to, to, to abolish lying uh, altogether. Um, that school was founded by, by French Catholic nuns, by the way. Um, uh, so, um, uh, so she was really this almost a dream for a social scientist. You've, you've, it's a great controlled experiment. Um, and she carried out her, she got permission from the school, obviously, from the schools. Um, uh, in school A and school B, so, so that's what we'll, we'll call them. School A was the kind of modern school. School B was the, the harsh disciplinary regime. She called it a punitive environment. That's her, her kind of phrase for it. Um, and she carried out this experiment on, on, on uh, a good sample of the kids in, in both schools. And uh, the results were sort of uh, really very surprising to her. Um, the, in school A, the kind of modern-ish modern Western school, um, the results that she got were roughly similar to, to the kind of data that she got from schools in Canada and, and Europe and the States. Um, some of the kids lied, some didn't, some of them lied badly, you know, some of them lied reasonably well. The kids from school B, the harsh, the punitive environment school, uh, were exceptionally good liars, and they all lied. And she, the, the data was off the charts, she'd never seen it. I mean, there was all, virtually 100% lying behaviour, and, and uh, not only were they all lying, they were all ex extraordinarily good at it. Um, and. And, you know, she, she said, look, they, they've, they've, they're basically adjusting to the environment they're in. It's not because these kids are morally, you know, deformed. Um, and they're not just bad kids. There's the rational strategy for them in a situation where they're constantly accused of, of uh, lying is just to get better at lying. Um, so I think we've, we've put our politicians in the equivalent of school B. Um, <laughs> punitive environment. Whatever they say, we're going to whack them. Um, and accuse them of lying. So, uh, uh, and actually, well, they don't lie outright. I think they have learnt to, to well, as, we, as we've been seeing, sort of uh, evade and, and, and trim corners and so on uh, to, to get around this. 
It's a wonderful insight. So, Jonathan, why does anyone willingly put themselves in school B these days? <laughs> um, I, I think, well, people go into politics, for, as I said, for, for, for good reasons. But I do think there's a big problem between the press and politics. And if Levinson Inquiry doesn't sort it out, I don't quite know where political dialogue in this country goes. I mean, we used to, uh, when Sunday papers would produce stories that might not be entirely true, we'd call up and say, but, or indignantly and say, but that story's not true. And they say, but it was a good story. And, and we say, no, no, but it's not true. It may be a good story, it's not true. They say, yeah, but it's a great story, even if it wasn't true. <laughs> so there's no accountability for, for journalists when they, run a li- when they run a lie like that, even if they know it's a lie. Whereas if politicians even make a, get something wrong by mistake, that they haven't got the facts straight, they get it out, and they have to go and apologise to House of Commons. There's a, a disparity that's a, r- a real problem, and it does force politicians into actually, it's not, it doesn't force them into to lying well. It forces them into trying not to take responsibility. And I think Gordon Brown actually is a very good example of this. You, you, you find yourself um, it's trying to slough off responsibility on everyone else. It wasn't you that did something, it was someone else that did it. And so that's what they do if they're, they're caught in this trap. And I, I do hope Levinson can do something about making the press more accountable and getting the, the level of political dialogue a little bit better, but I, I'm not enormously optimistic. Douglas, what do you think? I think that there's one, one factor that hasn't been uh, explored yet by anybody, um, but don't dismiss it from your minds. The extent to which repetition creates in the minds of the person talking truth. Um, I, there's a, a ludicrous question, I can't remember the details, in which uh, Tony Blair uh, said that he supported a particular football uh, team in the north, and it turned out that he'd not, never, never seen them. Or he was two years old when they when they went bust, or whatever it was. <laughs> and and um, um, but he, I'm quite sure that he, and it, it often happens, he actually got himself into which he, he'd said so often that he supported Sunderland, or what it was, that that actually he did believe that. Uh, he, he really, he, he, no, people, people really do. They, they, they say something often enough. They really convince themselves, let alone convincing anybody else, but they actually convince themselves that it's true. I'm, I'm writing a life of Disraeli at the moment, and Disraeli, I believe, was absolutely certain that he was descended from some rather grand Jews in, 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 in Italy. And he had the name, and he had the dates, he had it all organized in his mind, and I'm pretty sure that he actually believed himself, he actually believed that it was true, and that he would be genuinely indignant if, um, when you actually showed him that it wasn't possible. And I think that that process, I, I sometimes actually believe that Anthony Eden believed what he was telling the House of Commons, which was a lie, uh, that there was no um, uh, stitch up, no, no plotting in, in, uh, with Israel over the, over the Suez. I, I believe that I, he, heard it, he said it so often and said it so convincingly that I really think that the first person he was really persuading was probably himself. I, I agree with Douglas's general point there, which I think is very important, but just on the Tony Blair thing, it's interesting because you're proving the point from the opposite point of view. It wasn't about which uh, football club he supported. He'd always supported Newcastle since being a choir boy at Durham Choir School. It was he claimed to have seen some football footballer called Jackie, someone I know nothing about, football. I can't remember who he couldn't have seen. Actually, he never said that. The newspaper took this out of an interview which was demonstrably, was a recording of it, it was demonstrably untrue. It was repeated so many times that it became a fact. Tony Blair could never undo it. And the more times you denied it, the more he was just lying about denying it. So it's interesting, if you do, you're right, if you repeat things often enough in the press or the politician, it becomes a truth. Yeah. And they eventually were attracted, didn't they? I mean, eventually, they didn't do any good. No. <laughs>
Yes, because then it's settled. There is one last intriguing point about this, which is of all the evidence, of course, that being lied to is good for us. From um, an amazing example in Ian's book, we all know about the placebo effect. But there's something really dramatic in his book, which is that in 1944, on the beaches and on the invasion of Europe, um, medics who had run out of morphine to treat appallingly injured soldiers um, started in despair, injecting them with saline instead. And the people who believed they'd been given morphine felt no pain and were calm and relaxed in just the same way as the people who had actually been given the drug. Now that's an amazing example of actually how lying can often be something terribly constructive. In the same way, there are lots of psychological experiments that show that if you take groups of children and tell both teachers and children, completely random, this particular group is extremely talented at maths or French or whatever, they then perform far better than they have done before at maths or French. It actually influences the way they behave. And this happens all the time in politics, too. If you think about Churchill's speech about we will fight them on the beaches, I mean, the reality at the time was that Britain was not in the slightest bit united in its desire to fight the Nazi threat. And had he said the truth, which is that, you know, we're a piddling little nation and we're very likely to um, be overrun by the Nazis any time soon and no one's going to come and help us and nobody in the cabinet is convinced it's a good idea to try anyway, so I'm giving up. That would have actually been the truth. <laughs> yes. And in fact, really, by sheer force of personality, he, A, made everybody in the British nation who was listening at least have shivers down their spine and think this would be a cause worth fighting for, and convinced his um, very doubtful cabinet. And so lying about the reality of the situation actually changed the truth of, of, of the course of that war. And there are numerous examples of it. Well, now I'm going to throw it open to um, the floor. We're going to take questions three at a time. And I'll start to the man at the back with, um, with the jersey. Um, if, if you'd like to, do tell us who, who you are, or your name at least. Um, my name is Ed Burke. Uh, just a question to Jonathan Powell. Um, Jonathan, you, uh, first of all, thank you very much for what you did in Northern Ireland. Uh, deeply appreciated by many Irish people. But um, just in terms of some of the colourful characters that you, you had to deal with, in terms of their um, you know, incredible ability to, uh, to sort of obscure the truth, I mean, could, could you say in your, in your who is your top one, two, three? <laughs> <laughs> In terms of the ability to deceive and lie in Northern Ireland, um, <laughs> and then, and then, secondly, um, Bertie Ahern. You know, to many people, Bertie Ahern is the biggest liar to rule a country since Macbeth, um, <laughs> and you know has been up in front of various tribunals for uh, for corruption, for not having bank accounts, etc. How useful was it actually to have a very deceptive and devious liar like Bertie Ahern negotiating the Good Friday Agreement? How good was he actually, and and how useful was that? And if you'd like a lawyer afterwards, after you made your comments about this, Ed is going to pay for one. Um, yes, this gentleman here, and then the lady at the end there. Yeah, there's a, um, I'm intrigued about this evolution argument, you know, the fact that, that we have um, evolved in order to lie, but we've also evolved for self-deception, you know, and, and the idea is that if we um, deceive ourselves, we're much more convincing and there's a tendency for us to favor politicians who could be convincing. So I'm wondering what the relationship is between self-deception, whether politicians are more likely to be in a position of being able to deceive themselves because they're selected for it by their need to be convincing, and what role that has in, in this whole, uh, whole question. They're slightly more likely because of their profession, that they are constantly mm -hmm. having to say things to people, having to give assurances, yeah. having to answer questions. Uh, we, and most of us, I now feel, uh, feel a sense of release when, when I'm not actually uh, uh, in that position. 
And you could easily say, when you, if, you, if you don't know the answer to the question, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that question. A pol no practicing politician can ever say he doesn't know the answer to a question. He has, he's in the business of persuading everybody there that he knows something about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This lady. Monica Berber. Um, before I ask my question, my grandma brought me up not to lie in everyday life or to avoid telling the truth. And I, I still go by it. And I get into a lot of trouble because of that. Do, do you have any friends left, Monica? <laughs> not many, no. Although <laughs> oh, I, I do have some, I think. Anyway. Um, <laughs> What I'd like to ask is, um, do, do you know what Ed Miliband was talking about when he was talking about the game in his first speech in, in the House of Parliament as the leader of the Labour Party, and what Peter Mandelson meant about an experiment? Is it anything to do with mind control experiments? Or so, the experiment that's going on? Uh, Monica, I'm lost. What was that question? What um, Peter Mandelson was talking to Jeremy Paxman about. He about Ed, Ed as an experiment as a leader. Some kind of experiment. It was a pity that somebody didn't comply. But does anybody know what he meant? Thank you. Do you know anything about an experiment that's going on? I think it was a political experiment he was referring to rather than I've, anything else. I've contacted a lot of politicians. I've had no reply whatsoever. Thank you. Um, Ed. Your question, uh, Ed's question to you, Jonathan, about Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, well, um, Tony, Tony Blair, who's doing Middle East uh, peace process at the moment, occasionally calls me up and says, both sides here are just so unreasonable, I can't believe it. I can't. And I remind him that we actually dealt with some people who were much more unreasonable, much, uh, much more inclined to, to lie. And I think my top candidate for your, your, um, your award would not be a person, but a, a, an organisation, which would be the Orange Order. And when we were negotiating with the Orange Order on Drum Cree on the march uh, uh, down the Gavaki Road, actually both sides were incredibly unreasonable. But I do recall one meeting with the Orange Order where, where one of them really started saying things that just made, I'm normally a fairly calm person, but it made my blood boil. And I jumped to my feet, leaned over the table, grabbed him by the uh, lapels of his coat, and was about to clock him one when Tony Blair pushed me into my seat and uh, told me to calm down and be sensible. And after the meeting, he said to me, uh, Jonathan, learn one thing about politics. Don't ever lose your temper except on purpose, which I thought was a very good, uh, very good lesson to learn. In terms of Bertie Ahern, now I would definitely be a champion of Bertie Ahern. I mean, the fact that he and Tony Blair were able to work for 10 years on Northern Ireland was what helped bring about that piece. And I think that um, uh, Bertie's flexibility is actually what made him such a brilliant negotiator with the social partners in Ireland, for example, which gave the success of the government and also uh, actually a brilliant chair of the European Council where he negotiated a number of different deals there. Um, so now I think his actual skill uh, is a remarkable one in terms of negotiation. Do you think there's any element that's joined together this question here about self-deception where one perhaps ought to be able to forgive a duplicity of a politician in other areas as in Ahern's case for what they might do in the grander scale of things? Do you just say this is a duplicitous personality and we're very grateful for the skill in one area but we, even though we may abhor it in another? Well, unfortunately we tend to do to, 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 to both. That we, we abhor the politicians for the, the line, we forget about the, the benefits they achieve by it. Mm. Um, Douglas, do you have anything to more to contribute to that evolution I argument. Th there are certain um, 
traps along the way. And a, a sensible politician, regardless of his actual basic honesty, will do his best to avoid those traps. Um, telling a lie to the House of Commons, there is something sort of mystical about that. It, it's assumed that uh, it's, it's, it's much more difficult to do. And the Eden case that I've given was, 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 was one example. Profumo was, 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 was another. Uh, and these people crossed a, a, a border in lots of people's minds. They had actually lied, but they'd lied in a place where it was not, it was not even reasonable to attempt to lie. Cast in the House of Commons, or I imagine if you're a Catholic, in confession. You are that, that you crossed a border when you actually tell a lie to a priest, which otherwise, which you would desperately not want to do. And, and therefore, you, you know, there are certain, within lying, there are certain boundaries which I think most sensible people would, 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 would be careful to avoid. Thank you. Ian, what about the self-deception? Um, yeah, I think that the question gentleman asked here at the front is really interesting. Um, uh, it's one I discuss in the book. Um, do we do we sort of select for uh, abnormally high degrees of self-deception in, in our politicians? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, well, uh, I, I think the answer is almost certainly yes. And certainly there's a lot of evidence that, 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 that we select for, for self-deceptive, particularly self-deceptive people in, in other areas, um, in sport. Um, uh, championship people who win championships uh, tend to be very good at, uh, at self-deception. Um, business leaders um, tend to be good at it. Uh, military leaders tend to be good at it. Um, so we all walk around with what one, one somebody called a margin of illusion about ourselves. Um, nearly all of us have some sort of positive illusion about ourselves. Uh, we think we're a little bit more competent, a little bit better looking, <laughs> a little bit more interesting than we actually are. Um, uh, the, only, the only group that, that doesn't um, have this sort of lovely cloud of, of, of self-deception uh, uh, are, are people who are clinically depressed. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of evidence to, to, to support this, this uh, proposition. Um, uh, but some people do have more self-deception than, than others, and they do tend to be the ones that, that go on and run businesses um, and, uh, and start wars. Um, and... Uh, uh, and, and there's a sort of tricky paradox here because, um, on the one hand, um, their, their, their capacity for self-deception means that they're actually better at their job in a lot of respects. Uh, they tend to be more decisive. Um, they tend to be uh, better. And they tend to be more confident and therefore better at inspiring confidence uh, in others. So you do tend to find that a, a sort of margin of, of a good margin of self-deception um, helps. The, the trouble can be when you get a, a group of people who are like this all converging into a group um, in a boardroom uh, or, or around, or around a, a political cabinet table um, and, and this sort of bubble forms in, um, in sort of uh, self uh, of delusion so it's sort of normal self-deception turns in, into delusion um, and the, I'm going to give you a very extreme example of this uh, from the Iraq war not from our side uh, but from the Iraqi side um, I was interested to, to, to find out uh, a little bit about uh, the mistakes that Saddam made, because obviously it didn't go well for him. Um, and uh, <clears throat> a lot of it had to do with the fact that he had created uh, within his regime um, a, a sort of hall of mirrors uh, in which everybody lied to everybody else. He was a, became more and more self-deceptive 
um, and, and more and more expected to hear just what he wanted to hear from everyone else, until everyone was lying to him. So <clears throat> the reason that he was, you know, part of, part of the reason he was madly signaling um, to the world that he had weapons of mass destruction, even, even as he sort of publicly said, no, I don't, um, is that he wanted uh, you know, his neighbours to believe, believe that he had them. But there was also part of them that believed that he sort of did have them. Um, and uh, uh, people within the regime weren't entirely sure if, if Iraq had weapons of mass destruction or not. Um, I talked to a uh, uh, guy called Kevin Woods, who's a former um, very senior commander in, in the US Army, um, who was commissioned by, by the US military to, to do a sort of uh, a post-mortem into, in, into uh, the Iraq war to find out what had happened from, from the Iraqi side. And he went into to Baghdad a few months after the, uh, Baghdad fell um, and interviewed Iraqi officials, politicians, uh, and, and military people. <coughs> and said, look, you know, just, just t t tell me what happened. You might as well tell me what happened now. And they were all very, uh, very willing to because they wanted to show that it wasn't their fault. Um, and they painted this extraordinary picture of a government where everybody lied to, to everyone else. And the most sort of striking moment from the conversation I had with him was, was when he said, yeah, and, the, and there was, I, I said to him, you know, what, did you get any sense that perhaps some people within the government thought that actually they might have WMD? And he said, yeah, um, I, I talked to a guy who was responsible for, I think he was the head of research in, into chemical weapons. Um, and I said to him, at the end of our interview, did any part of you think that perhaps the regime had WMD, you just didn't know about it? And, and the guy said, yeah, I did kind of think that. Um, and he said, why? Well, he said, for two reasons. One is that um, you couldn't trust anything anybody else said. Um, and so, and nobody told anybody about what was going on. So I thought, you know, I, there's no way for me to know. We, we may well have them. But the second and kind of closing, clinching reason was that your president said it was so. <laughs> he said, Bush seems so certain. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, the CIA was so... And he said, CIA are serious guys. They don't mess around, right? You know, so, so uh, and then he started to wonder whether or not the CIA were talking to people like him. Uh, and, and they were feeling bad. Yeah, we probably do have them. And the union created this sort of terrifying hall of mirrors thing. That's, That's how it can go wrong. This um, point of self-deception, actually, is very, is very important. It can be a positive, and obviously it can be a negative. Um, in his book, Tony Blair accuses me of saying that he had a messiah complex. And the truth is that Mo Molum told me that he thought he was effing Jesus. And that was, um, <laughs> that, that was the problem. But if he hadn't thought he was Jesus, if he hadn't thought that the Northern Ireland problem could be solved, which no previous Prime Minister, including John Major, who deserves a lot of credit on Northern Ireland, but John Major too had his doubts that you could actually resolve Northern Ireland, let alone believed he could do it himself. If you didn't have that self-belief, it would be very hard to get to uh, a settlement like that. The trouble with, with self-deception is that it leads to hubris in politicians, which is usually what brings them down. You see in Putin at the, at the, at the moment, for example. But I remember Mrs. Thatcher in, uh, in 1989 going to the uh, French um, summit, the G G7 summit in Paris. And uh, it was the anniversary of their Bill of Rights, and they were having a big celebration of it. And she'd said some rather um, uh, uh, unpolite things about their Bill of Rights being 100 years younger than ours, not nearly as good. <laughs> uh, and my brother was Mrs. Thatcher's Foreign Affairs Private Secretary at the time, and I was a very junior official at the back of the motorcade. And we drove through Paris, and we went through the Place de la Concorde. And there was a demonstration, waving placards at her and shouting and waving their fists. When we got to the embassy in Paris, the British embassy has a circular drive, so the motorcade came in and drew up in a circle like that, 
as I got out of the last car in the cortege, my brother, Mrs. Thatcher, got out of the, um, the Rolls-Royce, and uh, Mrs. Thatcher said to my brother, wasn't it nice to see all those people waving at us? <laughs> and, and that's where hubris gets you in the self-deception stance. <laughs> One last point just to Monica. I think what Peter Madison was referring to was a political experiment in the way that Ed was taking the Labour Party. Nothing, nothing more than that. Can we take some more questions? Can we? No. Um, can we have the lady in the green, please? Um, my name's Hilary. Um, I just wondered if um, perhaps Ian or, or anybody else um, had any thought that one country or nationality was more predisposed to um, <laughs> lying than another. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's tricky territory, this. Um, actually, I mean, no, uh, there, is, there isn't any evidence that, 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 that one country is... I, I think it's a universal human trait. But, but what, what is true is that people uh, in different countries or different um, regions, uh, there is some evidence that they lie for different reasons. So um, in uh, a, an individualistic uh, uh, culture like America or, or, um, or Britain, um, people usually lie um, uh, to, to defend themselves or to defend a, a friend from, from, from harm. Um, but also there's a, much, there's a very strong moral prohibition on lying generally. Um, in uh, Asian cultures, um, China, there's, there's a bit less of a moral prohibition on, on lying. It doesn't mean they're lying all the time, but it's not such a, a big deal. Um, and it's seen generally as uh, a bit more acceptable to lie if, if you're lying on behalf of the, of the group, uh, whether that be your, your family um, uh, or, or your, your, your people at work or, or, or the class. So um, if, you're, if you're kind of doing it for that, for that reason, then it's, it's a slightly, it can be a, a noble thing, which, which may be a more sensible way of, of thinking about it. Let's take three more. Can you take the gentleman in the middle at the back, the lady in the red, and the and then at the end? I would like to touch upon what, what the lady said before uh, with the nation, uh, nationality and lying. Uh, and I will say that um, don't you think it's more probable that the European government tends to lie more than those in the developing country? Uh, the reason being, uh, you've got a very strong civil society here in the UK, uh, whether when you go to, to Africa and some other country, um, if I take my, my president in my country, he doesn't need to lie. Which just, country uh, is that? I, I won't say the country, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but but no, my point is uh, to, to, to try to make a parallel between the, the, the power of the civil society and uh, how accountable the politicians are. So you mean they need to lie more here? Yes, because the people will take them accountable for it. But mm -hmm. in some other country, well, we got uh, to bother about how to, to eat, so we don't really care what the politicians are saying. <laughs> Thank you. The lady in red behind. Uh, I wanted to say a word in defense of the French nuns, having, um, <laughs> <laughs> having gone to two uh, convent schools established by French nuns. They did at least provide, I think, a very good education, although they were strict. Um, and they taught me, essentially, not to, to lie, 
but um, you became very adept at avoiding issues, if you like. Um, so you possibly could um, disguise the, the answer without lying. I actually um, think that lying is, is, is very bad. And I wonder how much of the problem comes from the idea that if you say things three times which are wrong, it becomes true, which in professional life I've found has been a very common way of, in a way, bullying people. Because if you don't dare contradict somebody who's important, and once they've managed that three times, they've won. Sorry. Thank you very much. And then the gentleman at the end here. Um, I don't think I've seen a group of more exasperated people than the Home Affairs Select Committee when they were interviewing Dave Hartnett and uh, Inglese from uh, HMRC. And in this is about tackling them on whether they'd allowed tax evasion by big companies like yeah. Vodafone. Yeah, um, and the impression that you get is that they absolutely hated the fact that these people were ducking and diving the whole time and hiding behind kind of little bits of legislation and the fact that you we don't have to tell you certain things. And Margaret Hodge really did lose her temper. She was the chairwoman. And then stormed out and brought back a Bible and made the people, made Inglesi sign on it. <laughs> now, I think you have there in microcosm what the country really feels towards the politicians, that why can't you just give us a straight answer? Mind you, these people weren't politicians. They were civil servants. No, I know, but in microcosm, you see what we think of the politicians that do that to us, if you get what I mean. Right. And um, my question is, what came out of the report wasn't that, these, wasn't that these people are not very good at their job, it's that they're not very trustworthy. And I wondered what you thought the relationship between truth and trustworthiness was. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to respond to any of this, huh? Well, yeah, I, there's, the, the point about um, the suggestion that in the developing world, lying is less common than in, the, say, the European Union, with a sort of stronger and... Um, as you know, less accountable um, institutions. Um, I think there is a point here about you know the re rhetoric and the the bending of truth, and that you do need to be able to conceal, fudge, obfuscate, twist much more in a society where you are more democratically accountable. I mean, rhetoric historically, its rise is coterminous with that of democracy precisely because this was, you know, the, the more you need to persuade people in order to exercise power, the more you also need to be able to shape their perception of the world. And that's, as I said before, not a question of a straight lie. It's more a question of framing terms. Think. So in a society that's more or less dictatorial, what you'll tend to get, I mean, you'll get the Hall of Mirrors effect because the people down the food chain feel extremely accountable to the people higher up it. But in a properly functioning democracy, it's the other way around. And the people at the top of the food chain are the ones who have to worry about those lower down. And that, I think, absolutely shapes the, both the truthfulness and the um, you know, rhetorical sophistication of the discourses that you see you know, up at the top. Sam, do you have a view particularly about the relationship between truth and, uh, in, truth and trustworthiness? Um, well, obviously, it helps if you tell the truth um, more often than not to, uh, to be trusted. Um, I, I think the, the point is, uh, is, is that unless 
in, in any community, society, any group of people, um, unless most people in it tell the truth most of the time, then it simply doesn't um, uh, function very well. Um, I mean, Saddam's regime was a case, an advanced case of, of that, where, where things broke down because everybody was lying too, too much to each other. Um, there, there's a quote in the book from um, uh, Sir Thomas Brown, sort of contemporary of Francis Bacon, um, uh, and I can't remember the, the wonderful language he uses, but essentially his, his point is that even in, in hell, he said if we went to, to hell and we saw the, the devils who were always lying to us, if we saw them hanging out with each other, we'd see that they were telling the truth to each other. Because truth makes the, the world go around. All communities are sustained by, by truth. Um, and it, actually, if you think about it, it's quite a sort of almost subversive point that he's making because he was sort of suggesting that actually not, the reason we tell the truth isn't because we're morally good people. Basically, we tell the truth because it works. You, know, you can't cooperate, you can't get anything done, nothing works uh, unless most of the time most people are telling the truth. On the other hand, uh, all these things require uh, a few uh, uh, lies from time to time. So I think we need a, a, a balance. There's a very interesting example of that from business as well. I don't know if you will remember the um, chaos over Terminal 5 when it first opened and what a disaster it was. And what emerged when people started doing an inquest into what had gone wrong in BA was that everyone said that the chief executive of BA, Willie Walsh, was a man to whom you could not bring bad news. So nobody had dared tell him that the whole thing wasn't working out until it publicly fell apart, very which, of course, was catastrophic. Yeah. Yes. I think um, Douglas. After... Um, um, a somewhat tort no, most enjoyable but tortured um, uh, ser- um, profession of dealing largely with foreigners, whether in the foreign service or in uh, in uh, in the, in the uh, as, a, as foreign secretary. Um, I've come to the conclusion that um, there are four countries which are uh, uh, have a, have a, a bias, not a bias in favour of lies as such, but a bias in favour of uh, the perception of their own country as uh, special, supreme. Um, one of those countries is, is Britain, clearly. We have, that, we have that superiority complex, though we don't always recognize it in ourselves, and we often say that we, are, we are, suffer from inferiority complex. Don't believe it at all. The, the second one, and I, I, I hope I'm not causing any undue offense here, the second one is the French. The third is the Chinese, and the fourth is the Iranians. Now, the the thing that all those countries have in common is a long and glorious past. And the tendency to feed on your past and to bring forward the past always as a justification for what your rulers have happened to do in the present, that that is a a, a very strong um, additive, as it were, in in the question of truth. I'm very intrigued by that, Douglas, because I thought the Americans thought they were more special than anyone on earth. Not through their past. Not through their past, but but, but, but don't don't they feel they're terribly special now? Exceptional? Well, you you may know different Americans, I don't know. (laughs) I I don't find them. I find them, on the whole, a diffident lot. Uh, (laughs) Gosh, George Bush, Donald Clinton, but there we are. Um, Jonathan, what... Uh, What's your response well, to that? Well, I, just, uh, I think the, 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 the truth um, and trustworthy point is actually very important. I mean, what I do now, I, I go backwards and forwards between relaying messages between governments and, and, and terrorist groups, essentially. And they often say really uh, awful things about each other and tell me to go and tell the other group uh, they're going to start killing them again, they're going to pile bodies on the table, 
And I take it upon myself not to repeat those particular insults. Some people who do this do go and repeat those things because they think they should be absolutely honest and repeat every thing. So I think there is room for what I called, as I said, constructive ambiguity. Can I just ask you why you don't do that? Because bitter experience tells me if you go and tell one group that, they will then break off the talks or uh, reply their own insults and the temperature goes up rather than down. So what you're trying to do is turn this towards a constructive purpose rather than actually try and make it um, take off into another conflict. But if you actually lie, if you uh, don't repeat some crucial part of the message or if you... um, well, if you turn something around, then you're, you are no longer of any value at all because you've lost your trustworthiness straight away. So there's a crucial dividing line between the two. And yours is essentially about keeping the emotional temperature down uh, and about not making people feel threatened. Well, what you're trying to do is get to an agreement. So you're trying to take out of this uh, often centuries of anger, centuries of resentment, and you're not trying to add to that by um, repeating literally what everyone has said. Mm. Fantastically interesting. Can we take another round of three questions? Um, take the lady could, here in the grey. Could I, could I yeah. inter- interject? And, and, and it's, it worries me a bit, really, um, that, that, that we have no one, actually, uh, in, in the audience so far who um, is, a, is a stern defender of truth. We may have them. I just haven't happened to pick them. We're going to, 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 to take this man here. All well, the hands have gone up. Okay, and, and uh, any more defenders of truth over here? <laughs> yes, no, I've got, I've, I've got him. The lady in the grey first, and, and then the gentleman waving his hand over there, and then uh, we'll take another one on uh, that side, um, the lady here in the red. Thank you, my name's Alex. Um, I just wondered, in the age of the super injunction, it seems that forcing out the truth about some politicians' private lives, specifically, and the speeding ticket issue may be one of those, may actually deprive us of some very good members of Parliament. How would you weigh the need um, for the public good to be able to hold their ministers accountable for their integrity with the way for cohesion of the government it might actually be good for us to be lied to? Thank you very much. Um, Gentleman here. Uh, I'm a GP in Tower Hamlets, and as some people may know, we this week felt we had to... um, be public about lies or be told by David Cameron and Andrew Lansley. I believe as a doctor that you have to actually, there are times when you shouldn't lie, that you have to um, uh, look at reality the way it is and not bullshit. And when you're building a bridge, you have to do that. When you build a building, you have to do that. Otherwise, it will fall down and there will be negative consequences. In medicine, we have to do the same thing. And I'm uh, pretty appalled that there is a lot of lying going on when we're dealing with technical things, and that includes the present uh, debate about the NHS. Just going back to your daily life, presumably if you're dealing with the terminally ill patients and you don't necessarily always tell them how terrible their prognosis might be? Then we're beginning to talk about something quite subtle. Yeah, you're you're trying to find out what do they want to know, Yes. and so on. We're there to serve them, not ourselves. So, no, it's not about... all the truth, nothing but the truth at all times. No. Mm. You have to be nuanced about this, but if you're building a bridge, you have to make sure you've got the technical aspects right. Yes. There are a lot of technical aspects, and if you lie about the technical aspects, you're fucked. Now, (laughs) no, I mean, this is true. Now, one last thing I'll just say, and you can then, you know, Richard Feynman, the physicist, had a saying. He came out with something, which I think is something we need to remember. He said, for a successful technology... Reality must take precedence over public relations, for nature cannot be fooled. Right. Thank you very much. And ladies, right here. Um, 
I just, uh, I just wonder in the age of the internet and sort of especially social media um, and the Im immediacy of news uh, now, uh, is it harder to lie or does one have to be a better liar? Very good question. Um, I'd like to take that first, Douglas. Is it good for us to be lied to in the greater good sometimes? And in the age of social media, as you said, how difficult is it? Yes, I think so. There are occasions when, um, and I think the Churchill occasion is, is, was one such, where um, viewed quite objectively um, on the question of really what is the greater good, uh, the, the greater good, uh, and we can see this now, is that the British people should have been encouraged to resist Hitler and not to um, uh, give in to him. Uh, that, that's that's a, an objective fact, I think, and therefore, therefore, the uh, extent to which Churchill was, as it were, trifling with the truth, um, uh, uh, exaggerating our own preparedness, exaggerating possibly the enemy's preparedness, um, was 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 a justifiable thing. Uh, and without that, um, not just the cabinet, but the, the whole um, uh, morale and, and feeling of the, of the nation about the war uh, might have gone into reverse. What about the private lives issue and whether we are losing people who have lied in their private lives and actually be better for us to keep them because they're good politicians? Yes, I think, I think that, that can be so. But I think there's a line, it comes back to what I was saying about a line, there, there is a line where the evil you do out of a lie um, um, actually outweighs the, any good that may, may, may come from it. And I think um, that the, 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 if, you, if you are actually in, in, <coughs> deceiving your, your partner or uh, your children or you're actually telling lies daily, as part of an essential part of your private life and the way you've organised it, um, then it's most unlikely that you would be a good a good public servant. Gosh, that's that's quite straightforward. Yes, John, what do you think? Um, well, actually, I was going to answer a, a different <coughs> aspect of the social social media point, which is what I think the social media does, and actually all modern media more generally, is it increases the velocity of news, rather like increasing the velocity of money. And it uh, means it's much harder to keep your story straight for, for longer um, because you get caught out. If you take a, a case in point, just a very topical case in point, there's the question of, that we're all asking ourselves about is the police horse. And did David Cameron or did David Cameron not ride the, the police horse? And it's quite interesting little sort of anatomy of one of these, the, the, these stories because first Downing Street said that he had not ridden with Rebecca um, um, Brooks, Brooks uh, ever, and then it was maybe he had ridden with Rebecca Brooks, but not ridden that particular horse. And then yes, he had ridden uh, that horse once, and he did know it's a police horse. And then they had to put out a further qualification saying perhaps you read it even more, ridden it, ridden it even more often. So again, you've got this problem that I mean, Paul Man probably didn't ever intend to, to lie, but because of the speed at which he was asked these questions at the European Summit and elsewhere, he found himself caught out. And frankly, it doesn't really matter whether he rode a horse or not. But this is an interesting anatomy of the way that this speeds things up. It's rather, rather suspicious that the horse is dead. <laughs> <laughs> so it can't talk. Dead horses can't talk. <laughs> um, can, I, can I just briefly come back on the on the on the um, the, on the social media uh, uh, question? It's a good example of this of, of, of how social media can um, undermine propaganda. Uh, and I, I do think, particularly for for more regimes that tend towards autocracy, um, social media 
uh, when it's allowed uh, is, a, is, a, is a very good thing and uh, can encourage more truthfulness to, to out. The reason it's all from Russia, um, uh, Putin, as you know, is very good at um, uh, projecting its image of himself as this sort of warrior uh, man um, uh, who sort of strangles tigers with his bare hands and, and, and so on. Um, and and one, of the, one of the things he did recently uh, was uh, a, a little film which was um, to support the, the Russian car industry, um, particularly production of larders. Larders, for some reason, have got a bad reputation. Um, and he wanted to, to make a big sort of nationalistic point about larders uh, still being a very sturdy car. Um, and he, uh, so he was filmed driving uh, a, a yellow larder um, across the vast, desolate uh, 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 Siberian landscape. And so on, on the TV news, there were very sort of dramatic pictures of Putin alone in his larder, you know, um, from a helicopter above, above, sort of shooting him, dri driving through Siberia. Um, uh, but somebody somehow um, saw him going past and filmed him on their phone or something, um, and then put the resulting film on the internet. And, and the, the YouTube video shows that, that just behind him there were 100 other vehicles, um, uh, including three other larders, <laughs> in case this one break down. Which they <laughs> so. Sam. I, was, um, I want to sort of develop the social media point slightly, that also, though of course, absolutely, it's a fantastic tool because it increases the velocity of news and it debunks and allows the debunking in that way. It also, you know, the old saying that the lies halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on um, applies in spades now. And as we all know, you know, you get these sort of, sometimes almost as a prank, you know, I'll put, OMG, Christopher Biggins has died onto Twitter, and it'll be around the world, and people will be organising Christopher Biggins' funeral before Biggins himself pops up and says, you know, I'm still here. Um, do you do this often, Sam? Oh, constantly, constantly. LOL. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I, it's not exactly in the social media, but in the transformative power of the internet. WikiLeaks seems to me to be an extremely good instance of a sort of almost extreme position of politicians shouldn't be allowed to lie, or more to the point that there shouldn't be room for any concealment. Mm. And it seems to me that you know, their stated position that, say, the US embassy cables should all be published in full because it's shameful and iniquitous that you know, our diplomats are able to communicate confidentially with their governments. Um, you know, I, I think this would probably undermine enormously the sort of work Jonathan describes, precisely because you, you, know, you need to be able to pass this information. Not, it's not untruthful, but concealment is an essential part of government, and, and a lie is very often a subset of concealment, or of at least the ability to move diplomatically in the dark. And I think you'd find few people, I think you'd certainly find few people in politics, but probably few serious thinks about politics who would argue that the model of complete disclosure along WikiLeaks lines is a responsible or a sensible one. I think that's absolutely right and as we all know from WikiLeaks there are a number of people particularly in the repressive regimes who were secretly talking to foreign governments who've had to flee their countries or go into hiding as a result of having yeah. been exposed. Um, I'm terribly sorry I don't think we have time for any more questions. Um, but all four of our authors, um, whose books I commend to all of you, Jonathan's is an absolutely gripping um, insight into what went on in number 10. Very funny in parts and, and, and full of surprising honesty, like um, 
Jonathan's admission that he had a special red box made for him with Chief of Staff put on the side. Thank you very I much. I love that. Because so did Alistair Campbell. He's <laughs> teased me for years. <laughs> because if I'd been made Chief of Staff at number 10, I think I'd have wanted one of those too. So it's sort of wonderful confessions about what it was really like being in number 10 and intriguing insights into power. Douglas House has written so many books that there's only space to store one of them outside. And this one, I believe, is about foreign policy. Is that right, Douglas? That's right. The last one. And... Sam's and Ian's books are outside as well, and they're ready to sign all of them. And um, thank you all for being such a um, lively and brilliant audience. I'm sorry we couldn't have time for more. Thanks to the panel. <laughs>